Hello and welcome to Careers by Design the Interviews. I'm Sharon Belden Castingway, Director of the Gordon Career Center at Wesleyan University. Today I am speaking with noted marine biologist Ellen Prager, class of 1984. Ellen, to start out, can you tell me a bit about your current professional role? So I have sort of taken a non-traditional track from being a marine scientist. Um, in the past, I have been a researcher and I've been on the faculty teaching organizations, but now I freelance and I focus much of my time on how we bring science to broad audiences and make it not only accurate, but entertaining. Ellen, I understand that you are from Massachusetts. Is that the case? I am. I grew up in Sudbury, Massachusetts. Can you tell me a bit about your childhood? What do you, when do you first remember becoming interested in science and the natural world? So I was very fortunate growing up because I lived in a town where there was still a lot of wild spaces left. And so... You know, on days away from school, my mom would say, okay, off you go. Don't come back till, you know, it's dark or something of that sort. And so I spent a lot of my time running around in the woods, climbing trees, jumping over streams. And I always loved it. I always loved just observing nature and being part of nature. So, so that has been true ever since I was a kid. Um, I was also very athletic, and I loved, I swam a lot in the summers, and I, I used to watch Jacques Cousteau on television. Right. So I, I, I had an interest in nature and the water pretty early on. Why did you decide to attend a liberal arts college, and why Wesleyan specifically? So I was looking at a number of different schools, and... The truth is my sister was at Westland, and uh -huh. she loved it. And I wasn't sure. I, I was looking at a number of schools, but I went to visit my sister while she was there, my older sister. And I was so impressed with the school, how much she enjoyed it, you know, everybody I met. And so it was really my visit to Wesleyan that secured that desire to go. Had you made the decision already to do a liberal arts college as opposed to, say, a science and technology, an MIT type institution? I had. I, I wasn't. I never really thought of going to purely science because at that time I was interested in science but not completely focused on it. I really didn't know at that point. I was sort of, I was interested in biology. I liked geology. And, and I think if I remember correctly, it was a while ago, I think I was really interested in biology back then, but I, I wasn't prepared to go fully into it at the time. So I wanted, I wanted greater flexibility. So tell me about how your feelings on that subject evolved while you were here. How did you get focused on a major and start to really fine tune your interests? So my, one of the things I really love about Wesleyan is that that you have flexibility and it, you have the opportunity to make the most of it. And so I started taking, I took biology and physics and chemistry and I took geology, which I really liked, and I took oceanography, which I loved. And so, you know, I explored different avenues and really I think I fell in love with the oceanography component 
and then decided that I was so interested in it that I, I decided to take a semester away to focus my time on that field and see if that's what I really wanted to do. And so I actually took a semester away during my junior year and went to a, a laboratory in St. Croix at the time where it was 50 students went and studied tropical marine science for a semester. And so I would say Wesleyan piqued my interest and prepared me very well, but the hook was set in St. Croix by that lab and by the what I got to see and do and the professors there. And I did see that it sounded like you had some interesting experiential learning opportunities during the time that you were at Wesleyan. Can you expand a little bit about you know, how you were spending your summers, other opportunities like that semester abroad? Well, so one of the things I always tried to do when I was at Wesleyan, I worked for the Environmental Science Department out in the field. I did some work for them. I'm, I've always been somebody who, when I wasn't in school, I've always had jobs. I've always wanted to have jobs. And so I, this is, it's a great story. When I was in St. Croix at that lab, we had a field trip to an undersea lab where scientists got to go and live underwater to study coral reefs. So all 50 students went on this field trip, and we were all gaga over this place. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Went back to the lab where we were studying and living, and I had brought a bicycle with me. And on that following Saturday, I got on my bike by myself, rode across the island to the undersea lab and asked if they had any summer jobs. And they said, well, are you certified for scuba, which I was, which was a big, a big part of me becoming interested in marine science. But so I got certified. Yes, I was certified. You know, they, they showed me these really heavy twin 112 cubic feet uh, air tanks. And they're like, can you pick these up? I was like, sure hopefully. Right. <laughs> and, and they said, okay, you've got a job. So I got on my bike and went back to the lab. And of course, when I got back, I was like, oh my God, I got the best summer job ever. And everybody said to me, how, how in the world did you get it? And I said, I asked. And I think it's a great message for, for students in school and in their careers is that, you know, opportunities don't necessarily come to you. You have to go out and ask for opportunity. And, and the worst that could have happened is they said no to me. But the best thing to happen is they said yes. And so I spent the summer between my junior and senior year being what they called a safety diver for the undersea lab, which was really a euphemism for underwater slave. But it was the best job ever. And I learned so much about diving, about doing field work in marine science. Um, it, it was just terrific. So when did you make the decision to attend graduate school? So after I graduated from Wesleyan, I was very fortunate in the lab I had gone to school with, I mean, I'd gone to school at in St. Croix, invited me to come back down and work as a lab assistant. And so I went back down to St. Croix, and I was working as a lab assistant, assistant diving instructor, you know, you name it, I did it. Again, one of those fantastic jobs, you know, low on the totem pole, but great learning experience. And while I was there, the professors that I was working with who were my mentors and my friends, they basically pushed me and said, you need to go to graduate school. And so that, that's kind of how I decided. They were like, you, you, know, this, you can't go in this job. You're not going to go any further. You need to go to graduate school and get your master's and then you know, potentially a PhD. So they... I would say they pushed me and they helped me figure out who would be great to work with and the 
kinds of things I wanted to study. And so that's really, so I left the lab to go back to get my master's. And why get your master's initially before getting your PhD? Well, because most programs start you in a master's program. And then you can either get your master's and go on to a PhD, or what happened to me actually is at the University of Miami, I, when I was finishing up my master's, they offered me the opportunity to bypass my master's and just stay for a PhD. But I decided that I wanted to get a broader education and I wanted to work with more people. So I finished my master's there and went to get my PhD somewhere else. So again, it was, I felt like I was being too, I was being sort of shoehorned into a very specialized uh, field if I stayed there and I wanted to broaden it out a little bit. And, I, and truthfully, after I went through my master's pretty quickly and I was pretty burnt out and I needed a break as well. What did you do, do, do during that break? So in between my master's and my PhD, I did really two things. I decided to try the corporate world and I worked for Shell Oil in their environmental division in downtown New Orleans, which was great because I decided the corporate life wasn't for me. And so one of the things in careers you have to do is not only about figuring out what you want to do with your career, but you also have to figure out what you don't want to do. And so they were, they were great. They offered to actually pay for me to go back and get my PhD, but it was just not the right fit for me. So... I quit, and at the same time, um, Dr. Peter Glenn, who is a just spectacular coral biologist from the University of Miami, asked me if I would like to go and help him and help supervise diving in the Galapagos Islands for several months on a research project. So you can imagine how quick my response was. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I did that, and then by the time I was finished with that, I was, I was going back to school for my PhD. And what did you decide to focus on in your PhD program? So in my master's, I focused on carbonate geology, basically reefs. So I was doing marine biology and coral reefs and geology of coral reefs. Because really, reefs, reefs are a whole ecosystem in themselves, and you, you need to study a lot of things to understand what's going on, not just biology or geology, in fact. And what I decided was, I got the biology and geology, what I really wanted to do then was look at the physical oceanography and coral reefs. And so I went to work with, with one, a person, a scientist, who at the time was one of the few people who was studying how waves and currents interact with coral reefs. And so that's I went to um, LSU to work with Dr. Harry Roberts, again, because at the time he was one of the few people who were doing that. And what was your first position out of graduate school? So out of graduate school, I took a position with Sea Education Association of Woods Hole, where I was on their faculty, and I would spend six weeks on shore teaching oceanography to undergraduate students who had taken a semester away from their college, and they went to SEA. So I'd spend six weeks with them on shore in Woods Hole, and then I would go with them on a tall sailing ship for another six weeks and teach oceanography out at sea. That sounds like a great opportunity for you and the students. <laughs> oh, it's such a wonderful learning program, not just for the students, but certainly for me it was as well. One of the things I think was fascinating that I learned on that was 
how different students learn. Because you could have somebody in the classroom who was getting C's and D's, but when you put out outside in the field and it's much more hands-on and physical, they get A's. And so I just learned so much about human nature, about teaching. Uh, really, it's a wonderful program. And seeing students gain confidence not only in their understanding but in their abilities. So I, I loved it. I, and I'm, I stay in touch with them and I, I, I involved as much as I can because I just think it's such a wonderful program. What led to your joining the U.S. Geological Survey? So, oh, you've got the whole, my whole, you know, uh, chain here of jobs. <laughs> so, uh, actually from SEA, um, I got an opportunity to be the director of a small marine lab in the Bahamas. And I was invited to interview for a job and couldn't quite pass that one up, so I did that for a little while, and there was a little bit of political upheaval in the um, ownership of the, the lab and management, and I bailed because I was being put in a very awkward position. And when I was leaving that lab as director, I um, sort of started putting feelers out to organizations, and, and there were some people with the USGS working in St. Petersburg, Florida on a project that was sort of right up my alley, and they hired me. And what did you feel that you gained from that experience professionally? I think with the, well, the USGS was great in the sense that I had great colleagues to work with. I learned so much about, you know, the thing about the USGS is that it brings together people who have different expertise and different specialties. And so I was able to work as a researcher with people who had similar interests to me, but maybe slightly different expertise. And there were a lot of people who I would say are were on the forefront of geology in tropical marine systems. And so I got to work with them, and I had to do a wonderful project in Florida Bay and the Florida Keys and involved with management and science-based policy development. So it was, again, another great exp learning experience for me and, again, I, I, you know, I got great experience, but I also got to work with some fantastic people. So you've done, you know, academic research, you've done field work, you've done some policy work, but I think what's really compelling about your background is you have actually lived underwater, an experience that even most scientists in your field don't get to have, as I understand it. Uh, tell me about how you got that experience and what that was like. So I have been fortunate enough to twice now live for one to two weeks underwater in the Aquarius Reef Base or Aquarius Undersea Laboratory, as some people know it, which is in off, offshore of Key Largo, Key Largo, Florida, in about 60 feet of water. And the first time I got an opportunity to do that, it's actually kind of funny because they had just renovated some equipment, and they were looking for a team of scientists who could go out and do some survey work of the coral reefs, but also test some new equipment. So I guess, so they asked me to be one of the guinea pigs. So they knew I could do the, the underwater survey work, but they also just felt like I guess I have the right personality to sort of you know do what it takes to be a guinea pig in that sense. So um, that was the first mission I did. And then the second mission was more of an outreach and educational mission with the with the Jason project with Bob Ballard, and um, we did a 
a program where we were broadcasting live five shows a day from underwater inside the lab. And so either, I should say, in, either inside the lab or outside showing the science of the coral reefs. So that was my second time. And then after that, I got to be chief scientist for that organization for a, a couple years, which was, again, it was really nice to be involved from the management perspective. So from that perspective, as a manager, what kind of background, what kind of personality do you have to have to successfully live underwater <laughs> for those stretches? Well, so, and I will say, I, I subsequent to that, I had been asked to go on another mission, and I declined because I didn't feel like the team was a, a team I really wanted to be living underwater with for two weeks. So that kind of... <laughs> You, what you're looking for is a group of hard workers, because if you're down there, you don't want to just sit inside. You want to be out working. So you want people who are hard workers. You want people who are really fun to be with, because you're going to be in really close quarters, and that are pretty laid back and not very demanding. Um, you know, I heard there was one mission where somebody didn't want to wash their own dishes. Well, that would not have gone over well with me. So, you know, it's really about finding a team that you gel with and that you can have fun with. The most fun I had on missions is when you had people with a really good sense of humor. You know, I'm, I used to say, you know, that's, I love to laugh. I love to make people laugh. And, I, I tend, you know, I will work as hard as is needed. So those are the kind of things you're looking for in a team. Life underwater has been compared with life in space. Could you comment a little bit about what your living conditions are like when you're living like that? Sure. So the thing about living underwater is once you've been saturated, or what we call saturated diving, so once you're 24 hours or more living underwater at depth, your body's saturated with gas. And so you can't pop up to the surface because of the risk of decompression sickness or the bends. Mm -hmm. And so a big part of this is that you are really in that laboratory. You can't just run out and go to the surface. I mean, that has the potential to be fatal. So you go through, I will say, you, you do go through a week of very intense training before you start living underwater of how to react to emergencies, getting accustomed to the environment, um, learning how to deal with the equipment, and learning how to handle things on the bottom and not think about going to the surface, which is most scuba divers' first reaction. So that's one of the reasons why it is so isolated. Um, the living conditions are fairly close. There's not a lot of privacy. You're in, the habitat itself is about sort of the size of a school bus, maybe, or okay. a small mobile home. There are three compartments. There's one compartment that has two tiers of three bunks. There's, you know, a, a little table with a viewport where you can eat and work on data. There's a wet porch, which is another compartment where you come in and dry off. So pretty small. Six people or six aquanauts live together at a time, usually two habitat technicians who are on staff, and then four scientists, or in our case, one time we had two cameramen with us as well that made up part of that six. You have written several books explaining aspects of both science and life as a scientist, written for the layperson. And how did that come about? How did you get interested in writing that type of book? So uh, one other thing I should say about living underwater, one of the things everybody always asks me is about food. 
so before I answer that question, let me just say. Sure. The food, you know, we, um, we had, in the beginning of the mission, we brought down, like, the kind of camping food where you just put in hot water and it rehydrates it. But one of the interesting things about living underwater at high pressure is that your taste buds don't work right. right. And so everything tastes really bland. Mm. So that was a really – so I said that once on camera, and somebody sent us a big, uh, big box of hot sauce, which was really funny. <laughs> Um, but then sometimes we get special deliveries, like one day somebody, they dove down a, a pizza. Um, so some, every once in a while we got, we got special deliveries, which was always fun, but most of the time they still didn't taste very good. So, um, getting back to your other question about the idea of going from those sorts of positions to communicating science to the public through writing and uh, working with the media and, and, and giving talks, you know, I think... I started writing children's books. I, my first book I published was a book with National Geographic called Sand. And it started because when I was with the USGS, I used to bring my sand collection into classrooms, and the kids just went crazy over it. And so I thought, oh, this would make a fun, really, kids book. And so I wrote it up, sent it to National Geographic, and they bought it. And then after that, I got a call from a publisher who wanted me to write the introduction to a book about volcanoes, earthquakes, and tsunamis, and work with some experts to write in a way for the public. And um, let's just say I ended up doing a lot more than just the initial chapter. Right. And so that really solidified my desire to write for the layperson. Not technical writing, not technical science writing, but write about science in a way that is accurate. I'm always I always strive to make it as credible as possible, but I also now want to make it entertaining and interesting. And I, so I think probably, you know, that, that book, those were sort of my intro into it, and then I just found this real passion for it. In your book, Chasing Science at Sea, you tell a number of stories about what life is like day-to-day -day, you know, as a marine scientist. What is your favorite story? What's the story you tell at dinner parties? Oh my gosh, that's such a hard question. There's so many great stories. Um, usually, you know, living underwater usually comes up as one of them. Um, gosh, what's a good one? Um, you know, I, there are so many uh, between being caught in storms out on ships or, you know, sharks swimming around where I'm in Florida Bay, stuck in the mud, and we see, you know, a fin going by, and we're like, oh, that's probably not good. <laughs> so, um, I, gosh, I'm just, I'm not sure which one I would pick. How about a story that relates to a time where you really felt that your life was in danger? Hmm. That, the, okay, so I have, I have thought of one that I usually tell, but I'll, tell you that in a second so my life was in danger you know I have not had very many of those and and people ask me that all the time for the most part I haven't because I've been through a lot of training and preparation mm -hmm. um, I think the closest time was my own fault and I think I had been diving so much when I got to my master's because I lived in St. Croix and I was diving every single day um, more than once a day I'll sometimes. And so I got kind of, I, you know, I'm the first to admit it, I got kind of cocky. 
And so I was out when I was working my master's in pretty deep water doing a work dive with two other guys, and we dove down to 110 feet, and the water, the water at the surface was really ripping. There was a real strong current. The Gulf Stream had come in, and we actually had to pull ourselves down the anchor line just to go down. You couldn't just drop down. You had to pull yourself down because of the current. And I got down to the bottom, and I, I'm also a swimmer, and I don't use air very quickly at all. Most of the time when I'm diving with people, they're, you know, finished their air, and I still got a lot of air in my tank. So we started, we all started doing our assigned tasks, and it was pretty murky, and so we couldn't really see where one another was, even though we weren't that far away, and I was out of air. When you, you know, usually when you're breathing off scuba tank, it's very easy to breathe, but once you get very low, you actually have to suck the air out, and um, you know, normally I, I check my pressure gauge. I do it a lot more now, but I think I just got cocky and I didn't check it enough, and I must have had a hole in my hose or the O-ring was bad, but I was out of air. And I couldn't buddy breathe because my, they was too murky and they didn't see me, and so I had to do an emergency ascent to the surface. And, of course, the current took me. We had some, we had some tanks hanging off the boat um, to do a safety stop on the way up, but I couldn't get to them because of the current. And so I just had to exhale on the way up. I knew I had enough air, and I just had to go with what my training told me to do. And I got to the surface, and, you know, they were, the guys I was working with realized I wasn't there, and they came up, and they found, they came and got me. And I um, sucked down a bottle of oxygen just, just in case, because that's the first thing you, you do if there's a question about potential bends. But I was fine. And I was fine because I knew what to do from my training. Right. So... You know, that, that's probably, that, that, well, now let me mention it, now I do, okay, there's a couple other ones, but that's, that was one of them, and I think it's a good lesson that, you know, you, you can't get cocky about those sort of things. Right. Um, so, yeah, so there have been a lot of stories, you know, I've been out on a, a, a trawler that was converted to a research vessel that we almost capsized on the way into a bad inlet because they didn't put enough weight in the, in the keel, that was very scary. Um, but one of the other stories I always tell people, and again, you know, this one, this is one from when I was working as a diver at Hydrolab in St. Croix my, between my junior and senior year. And I will tell you, at that, that time at Wesley, and I, I wasn't sure if I had what it takes to be a scientist. I was sort of intimidated by that, that stereotype of, you know, what a scientist is. But I was working on a mission at Hydrolab where they were studying the, they were trying to quantify the nutrient recycling in coral reefs by parrotfish, which is very important. And the way they were doing it is at night they would go around and they would follow parrotfish with these little plastic bags. And I sort of started thinking, wait a minute. If collecting parrotfish poop is science, I can do it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it sounds so silly, but it actually had a big impact on me because I was like, oh, they're just collecting, you know, they were collecting the parrotfish poop to then bring to the lab to analyze the nutrient, comp you know, component and quantify it. So it was real science, but I was like, oh, I can do this. <laughs> so <laughs> that was kind of a fun story. I like that. Now, tell me about Tristan Hunt. So, um, several years ago, I was 
giving a ta- lot of talks about my book, Sex, Drugs, and Sea Slime, The Ocean's Oddest Creatures and Then Why They Matter. And I started getting parents and educators asking me if I had anything targeted to middle graders. That book and most of the, the popular science I've written is targeted at high school and above. Mm-hmm. So they kept asking me, and my other my other illustrated books are between like four and seven-year-olds. And so people said, well, what about the middle graders between eight and 12? And honestly, I hadn't really thought about it. But they were right. There's not a lot written in terms of marine science or science for that age. Mm -hmm. So I started looking around to see what kids like to read. Well, if anybody has kids that age, they know they like to read fiction like Harry Potter there's a great series called Percy Jackson by Rick Warren. Those, they love these adventure, fun fiction stories. And I start thinking, hmm, what if I could combine adventure and humor with ocean science and marine life? And so that's where the idea came for the Tristan Hunt and Sea Guardian series. And so I started, wrote the first book is called The Shark Whisperer, and that came out a couple of years ago. Then the second book is The Shark Rider, and then the third book, Stingray City, just came out this May. Is there plans? Are there plans for more, or is it a trilogy? Um, it's not necessarily a trilogy, but for right now, this is it. The future is completely open. There could be more books, but um, uh, it will just depend on what, how the sales are of the third book and what the publisher decides. Right, it, fair enough. It's possible, but I will say... This has been the most rewarding thing I've ever done. Between I love writing this way and putting, I can really let loose with the humor and adventure, but also interacting with kids this age and seeing kids hugging an actual book, you know, and not letting go of a book and getting notes from parents saying, I had to go up at midnight and get my kids to stop reading or struggling readers' classes who are using the books. And so it's been so rewarding. Not only are kids getting interested in the oceans and marine life and real-world issues that I put in the book, but it's also about literacy. I'm getting kids who aren't necessarily into reading to want to read. So it's been, it's been fantastic. What is it that you still want to accomplish in your career? <laughs> I don't know. I never know. I've never gone into this with, all. Well, here is my goal. It, so... Um, I want to take advantage of opportunities as they come up to engage people in learning and caring about the ocean. And now I really love this idea of also helping with literacy. So I honestly don't have set goals at this point. Um, I kind of want to see where things go. Fair enough. Ellen Prager, Wesleyan Class of 1984, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I have such great feelings towards Wesley, and I'm always recommending it. So, you know, I'm always happy to do whatever I can. Great. Thank you. This has been Careers by Design, the interviews. If you enjoyed this podcast, help us attract new listeners by leaving a comment on iTunes. And check out our Careers by Design online course, available on iTunes U and the Gordon Career Center website. This podcast is produced by Sharon Belden-Castingway, music by Andrew Santanello.